Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Welcome to the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. I am so excited to have author, journalist, photographer, Sam Quinones here. Hello, Sam. How are you, Lori? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Sam is actually coming to our community next week. I'm really excited to talk about the book that you have right now, The Least of Us, that is just really, really poignant in what's happening in the world today, especially in the U.S. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, if you're ready for that already, and then we'll talk about um, the event Sure. It just yeah, a minute. Let's do awesome. It. One of the things that I just couldn't help but notice, obviously, as I was doing my research, is that there's a resounding theme in all of your books about Mexico and its people. Uh, yeah. So I was just really interested is what brought you, what led you to the Mexican people and and that story? Well, I, I mean, I lived in Mexico for 10 years. I was a reporter down there, freelance writer from 1994 to 04, a very different time um, because the drug wars between the cartels and then the government and all had not kicked off then i i lived in mexico in a much much more peaceful time and um but it was very and was really did not write very much about drugs back then i wrote mostly about immigration because i thought that was a much much bigger story and political change was about to happen and i think i was right but then of course uh the drug issue kind of overtook everything beginning in about 2005 and um, I, by then, I was at the LA Times in Los Angeles, uh, working for them, and they put me on a team of reporters to cover what was going on going on down in Mexico. And, and really, my focus was on drugs that they once they cross the border, how did they get to the rest of the country? And as part of that, I wrote a story about about these Mexican traffickers from this one town in uh, on the Pacific coast of Mexico who had developed a system for selling black tar heroin retail. Small, small retail quantities, very much like pizza with pizza delivery system where you would call an operator, the operator would dispatch a driver. And Reno was one place that they were very early on. Uh, Vegas to Portland, Boise, Salt Lake, you know, a a lot of this grew out of the San Fernando Valley in LA. But I would say by the late 80s, early 90s, they were definitely expanding into other other areas uh, of the country and on the west western side of the United States, and eventually they moved uh, east across the Mississippi River and covered the uh, have covered many many parts of the of of the Midwest and the East Coast. And so I was writing about these guys, and um, they had a lot to do. I had written a lot about immigration, and I'd read a lot about small small town Mexican life, and there they were all kind of they fit very well into that story. And so I got very involved in this story, and that led, led as I said, to the book uh, Dreamland, uh, that was really about how our opioid epidemic got going. Which I, I started that story is interesting. I started that story thinking the story was really about these guys from this one town. And there, this this fascinating business model they had was selling heroin like pizza. But I couldn't understand why they would have a new new heroin market, and that was largely because I was in Mexico through the nineties. I I was oblivious 
to the crucial central story that was really behind that, which was the expansion of opioid pain and prescription pain pill prescribing to the point where it's really doctors all across the country were prescribing these pills for for things that they never would have done earlier. And this created an enormous new supply of these pills. And a lot of these pills began to make it into the black market. And a lot of people began to get addicted. And um, they created, we created through that a brand new market of opioid addicted consumers Mm -hmm. that these guys that I was following from Mexico were simply responding to. They could see that this market was was moving. Uh, Up to that point, they had sold heroin uh, in other areas, as I say, like Reno and, and uh, San Fernando Valley and Portland, et cetera, Denver. Um, but during those years, they 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 encountered really a static heroin market. The people who were using had always been using. They were living in motels. They were. It was not a burgeoning market. What they began to see as they took this system east, right about the time OxyContin, coincidentally, about the time OxyContin comes out, they begin to move into primarily the first place was Columbus, Ohio. And from there, they begin to see this new market being created on mass, huge numbers now of people. And so they have, for the first time, an expanding market. And more and more people, more and more guys from this town began to get into this and they began to sell their black tar heroin. And people get addicted to the pills, would then find that the pills were very expensive. They'd lose their insurance, they whatever, they'd, they'd become uh, pretty bad off. And they'd, they'd have to, they would look for some way to switch to another uh, opioid, and heroin is one. And so they began to switch to these guys black tar heroin. And that was the story I wrote in in Dreamland. But a lot of that came from my time in Mexico because I understood Mm -hmm. Mexican village life. I went down to this town during their big fiesta and saw basically what had become a a, a small town fiesta had really been transformed into really kind of a, a, a heroin dealers convention. Uh, mm. Guys with money spending it on on music and on beer and acting the 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 big shot for you know six weeks to two months and they run out of money and they have to go back and start selling it again you know um, and so that's really how I got into this entire story I do believe it's not possible to write about the drug issue in America today without knowing about Mexico because mm. all of the drugs come well most of the drugs come from or through. Mexico. And uh, that's absolutely the case now with methamphetamine and fentanyl too. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that one story, the book that we're talking about um, today that that we're going to be looking at um, in Reno years, The Least of Us, there was a story that I was so enamored by in the scientist that understood and just created the fentanyl and realized what there was. And when I was reading that, what brought me to something that you wrote during that story is that you realized as you were traveling, you thought it was an epidemic of opiate addiction. And then as you traveled, you realized it was of addiction broadened by staggering supplies of synthetic dope. And so what I got from that part of the story was that this person created this and understood this has addictive components. This will be super dangerous when it gets out there. But we're going to go ahead as medical professionals and keep it to ourselves and allow us to do the distribution. And so how did that sort of play out? Yeah, the guy who invented fentanyl, actually, you should know, I mean, fentanyl is a magnificent drug, fantastic drug. You know, surgically in the surgical setting, it has revolutionized surgery. It is a it is allowed for surgery that never would have been possible otherwise. I mean, it has helped many, many people. And I bet a lot of people out there listening have had fentanyl, whether they know it or not. I have. 
Right. Uh, well, and, and I think what's interesting is is what you're saying right now, Sam, is I had recently someone was in the hospital and they said, my gosh, they gave them fentanyl. And my I just every hair perked up and I don't I have no idea. I'm not educated about until I read your book. Thank you so much. Um that this was something that was actually okay and helpful yes. and an amazing. No, it's job. very helpful. Yeah. Oh, it's very helpful. And it's it has, as I say, revolutionized surgery. All kinds of surgeries are now possible, far less made it far less dangerous believe it or not fentanyl under the 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 watchful supervision of uh, of a surgeon and especially an anesthesiologist has made all kinds of tra- uh, of, of surgery possible and now you you I mean particularly I would say in the cardiac field cardiac surgery almost always uses it anyway it's 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 one thing used that way it's quite another when it's in the hands of the drug world, you know, right. um, and uh, people who are profit motive uh, have motivated and don't really care how they sell it and what form or or how well it's mixed or and and that's what really we've found. Underground traffic, underground chemists, I should say, figured out that they could make fentanyl, and you would see since the 1960s when it was first invented, you would see occasional little outbursts of fentanyl deaths. You know, Orange County had one for a bit in the 80s. So did San Diego and then some others. And but there was never really adopted en masse until the Sinaloa drug cartel and a story I tell in the book figured out that there was this thing called fentanyl from another underground chemist that they employed. They began to realize, oh, this is a synthetic form of heroin. We don't need to grow poppies anymore. We don't need to have sunlight. We don't need water. We don't need any of that. We just make it in a, oh my God, the lights go on, bing. And that happened in about 2006. There, a chemist got arrested and was out of action. And so it didn't take off probably as soon as as it might have had he stuck around. Um, But by 2013, 14, as we had developed an enormous population of opioid addicted consumers, Chinese chemical companies began selling fentanyl and they began selling it to low level dealers, mainly in the state's worst worst hit by the the opioid epidemic, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, places like that, West Virginia, et cetera. Um, And then as time went on, the Mexican trafficking world employing other chemists figured out how to make fentanyl. And really the story of the last four or five years, since about 2017, has been that the, the manufacturer really shifted from China to Mexico, the ingredients come from China, which they can get through these shipping ports that they that they now um, uh, that they they control on the western side of Mexico. Very crucial part of the story are those ports. They get all these chemicals from there, but they now people now all all across the western part of Mexico know how to make fentanyl, and that has been a, an evolution that's take place over the last five. I would say since 2017. Uh, maybe a little bit before that too. And so what you've seen is the combination of knowledge. The lack of law enforcement scrutiny, I would also say, by the way, the enormous amount of guns that are smuggled from the United States down into Mexico, bought very easily here, particularly assault weapons, mm-hmm. and and the the knowledge of how to do it and the ingredients that they can get from the, from the world chemical markets through these ports, all of that has combined to make them just allow them to produce just staggering quantities of this of these drugs not just fentanyl but also methamphetamine both of these drugs kind of hand in hand frequently mm-hmm. they're smuggled together frequently they're used together uh, you see this all and what's happened now is so much of this stuff has been produced that they now have achieved the unprecedented event of covering the entire country with not one but two 
drugs. We've never had that before. We've never had those that one source essentially covering the country with one drug, let alone let alone two. Mm-hmm. And that is what's happening right now. These are also happen to be the most devastating drugs we've ever known. Fentanyl, uh, particularly in these kinds of supplies, fentanyl is, of course, the deadliest thing we've ever seen on our street uh, streets. Um, meth turns out that the way they're making it now, the method they're making it now really either, it, it creates a, a rapid onset symptoms of mental illness, of schizophrenia, paranoia, mm. horrible delusions, all this kind of thing. It's very, very, creates, I believe, is a very major driver in our homelessness and in our tent encampment issues that we mm. are facing in many towns and rural areas all across, all across the country. So that is kind of what has evolved given this combination of Chemical ingredients, no law enforcement scrutiny, uh, enormous access to to guns smuggled in from the United States, and a wide knowledge base of people. It's like almost a synthetic drug rush, in a sense, down in Mm -hmm. Mexico. You've seen over the last, I would say, certainly over the last five years, maybe even longer when it comes to methamphetamine. Now, is there, you you did mention law enforcement, and it's interesting because there is such a rush of these types of drugs, but it doesn't seem like there's any anyone getting a hold of it, right? There's not, how can we stop it's this? It's tough. It's tough when you have endless supply being produced. I mean, this is a supply story. This is, a, this is not demand creating supply. This is uh, the other way around. Mm-hmm. This is supply creating demand. You're finding fentanyl being put into cocaine. Very commonly now. I don't think anyone should possibly trust any single line of cocaine in America today not to have fentanyl in it. It's just too dangerous. Right. Um, the supply is very difficult. And when you're talking about regional pro- regional uh, collaboration of law enforcement, which I think it does is done fairly, fairly, fairly well in the United States, mm-hmm. it still isn't enough given the, the supplies that are coming in from um, uh, uh, from from Mexico. I do believe that fentanyl. And to some degree, methamphetamine, but certainly fentanyl, have put an end to what is what has long been the era of recreational yeah. drug use. You cannot use any drug now and yeah. not trust that it will not have fentanyl in it. And you're seeing people die of this stuff, thinking, you know, oh, they buy a pill, oh, they get it from some guy, and and you know, that's the other way that that the traffickers now are 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 packaging fentanyl is in. What what at first they took great con- care to make look like legitimate pharmaceutical branded pharmaceutical pills, and now they don't care. Mm-hmm. They're coming up with all kinds of different colors, you know. And the reason they don't care is because so many people now are addicted to fentanyl. They're the first counterfeiters not to care that their counterfeit <laughs> product doesn't really look very much like what they're trying to pretend that it right. is. Right. Right. Now- so the reason is because so many people are addicted to fentanyl now that they, they don't care what it looks like. They only care that it has fentanyl in it. Now people are are demanding fentanyl because they are addicted to fentanyl. We are now in a time when we are seeing the end of heroin on the streets of America. You really don't find much heroin anymore. And I think within maybe a year or two, you probably won't see any at all hmm. because the fentanyl is just out competing, out crowding out all this. And, and if you are addicted to fentanyl, to buy any heroin would be a waste of money because there's just it, heroin will not address the huge tolerance you, that you have and will not keep the dope sickness away for that reason. And so people really are just asking for fentanyl now. Mm. This rings to me the story of the Sackler family and Oxy and Purdue and sort of the opposite of, right? We were in this place where 
it appears pharmaceuticals companies were selling this knowing that it was an addictive uh, form of drug, but saying, no, 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 it's not. It's actually helpful. So what you what I'm hearing you say is now we're on the opposite where the drug cartel and the people in Mexico are like, heck yes, it's addictive and keep taking it. And I'm going to keep making money off of you. Right. That's pretty much what it is. The, 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 the similarity is that um, the supply, if you mm-hmm. look at the supplies of opioid painkillers, prescription painkillers back in like the late nineties into the two thousands, you will see that we just essentially had the, the country was essentially covered in these pills. Many mm-hmm. people had them in their in their uh, medicine cabinets. They uh, medicine me- many of those pills kind of leaked down to black markets that were forming, and, the, and all. Of, so you see this enormous supply, you know, inundating the the country of prescription painkillers. In the similar way, you see this these enormous supplies of fentanyl and methamphetamine now covering the country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the trafficker said, "We'll take it from here. You're going to create this market." Uh, we'll piggyback on it, and then we'll take we'll take it from here, and that's that's essentially what's what's, yeah. what's happened, you know. And so now you have these these drugs in quantities that we never had seen. We had never seen methamphetamine remotely close to the 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 the, the, the quantities that we are now seeing uh, all across the country. Mm-hmm. And and what's more, not only have they covered the country, but with with the case of methamphetamine, for which we do have pricing history in most regions, we know what meth went for five, 10 years ago, and some places was a very expensive because it was so rare. Um, now, you know, you're seeing really a, a, effectively about an 80% drop in price as they cover the wow. country too. Wow. You know, I'm in Nashville right now. And in Nashville, there's, we, we, you know, the, the, the narcotics officers tell me that they would used to buy, used to buy a, a meth for like $19,000 a pound. Now it costs 3000. Oh my gosh. And that, the, the, that kind of price drop is, Everywhere. I mean, I've, something like that has happened in pretty much every region I've spoken to. Yeah. And that's interesting. You just said regions, because one of the other things that I saw in your writing about Dreamland was that you were believing it was an economic devastation, but you saw that addiction, it wasn't confined to yes. the Rust Belt or Appalachia or Tribal, but that it's actually, you know, like you said, the OC, Charlotte, Indianapolis. What do you think the phenomenon is about that now that it's not just, you know, and and I'm a woman suffering from long-term alcohol use disorder and I'm in recovery myself for that. And I realized years ago, it's been almost seven years that I took my story public that this was such a shameful sort of thing to discuss, especially in in sort of the upper echelon of of these communities like I live in. And so it's interesting to me that you wrote that, especially with all of your um, experience in Mexico and and such. So what are your thoughts on that when you you mentioned that in your book? Yeah, well, I think that that a a major root cause of, of what we've gone through if you start with the opioid problem and then morph into this, is simply um, uh, such a a dramatic shredding of community in this country. We, mm-hmm. uh, that is, uh, we are uh, so isolated, so lonely, so um, on our own. Uh, it's not healthy. It's not how we evolved, how we prospered as a species. We prospered as a species because we not we didn't just think that community was a good thing. We, we knew it was essential. It was absolutely essential to our own survival and prosperity. And, and now we kind of believe that we don't that that's not necessary because it's very messy. It's difficult to be around other people and, and, you know, you don't like them. They don't vote like you do, et cetera, that kind of thing. And so to me, it felt like, it feels like that when you dig down deep into these issues, you find that there is really, um, 
you know, it's 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 deeper than than just economic devastation. Yes, it's it's about our own isolation, our own shredding of 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 community, mm-hmm. and that leaves us vulnerable to things that community actually acts as a bulwark against. But we don't have that, you know. Um, and we've done a magnificent job in the last forty years, I think, of shredding what brings us together and what what uh, what allows us to be um to to prosper in in profound ways not just economically um uh, but uh emotionally and psychologically and and soulfully and maybe you know that kind of thing and so i i just think that that is I, that came that realization came to me as i was writing my my first book dreamland on this mm-hmm. topic and then at, with the least of us i tried very hard to make that the central theme right. of the story and and what and that became that's what the reason for the title. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the title um, co- comes. I'm not a Christian, but I did uh, read the, um, the Bible when I was I was writing this book and, and the Gospels and read Book of Matthew and and a, uh, that one part where he comes where he says uh, Jesus says that that what you do for the least of these my brethren paraphrasing here uh, you 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 do for me and um, that hit me because it seems to me the other issue that was involved in in all all this was we we destroyed community we wanted magic answers we wanted easy answers and so pain pills for all pain was the magic answer solution and it got in, into all kinds of very serious serious problems i wanted then therefore to focus on people who were doing the small daily work, the non-sexy, unnoticed work mm-hmm. of community, building community, repair, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that became the central force because that focus, because that became, seemed to me, our our defense, perhaps our only defense against all this dope that's just so toxic. And then, but not only that, all this ready legal addictive stuff like gambling, like um, uh, 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 alcohol, like video games and pornography and and sugar and fast food and mm-hmm. soda and and of course social media and and um and uh, the, uh, very toxic as well um and addictive i, I think is uh, is um uh, uh cable tv news you know fox yeah. and <laughs> fox and cnn all that kind of stuff and it seems to me that I, that the book then presented this real threat these drugs and as well a lot of the part of the book talks about the the legal addictive stuff and how it all kind of you know plucks at our brain chemistry and then says and and, and i present these stories these stories of people just americans involved in in community repair as a way of saying this is our defense not to say that she, everybody should just go out and and fo- and follow one story and try to replicate it. It's just to say try try to understand that that it, it, I think that the that the defense that we have is a very powerful one if we want yeah. to use it, but we yes. have decided not that it's not worthwhile or we don't want to use it. And that is the, the coming together in the small ways, daily showing up, daily work, not worrying if you're not solving the the world's problem in some noble and virtuous sense you know right. understanding you probably are not you just take the and but it's through those small steps those small daily stories that that the way we create social change without the unintended consequences that the big magic answers almost always bring you know yeah. And so it's it's these kinds of stories it's a story of a woman who was a kind of retiree from a corporate america 
and her husband died, left her some money, and she was very well off, and, and she had been tutoring at the jail, began to realize that all the guys she was tutoring had tattoos that really got in the way of them reintegrating into any productive life. And mm-hmm. so with the money her husband left her, she, she bought a tattoo removal machine, laser removal machine, and formed a nonprofit and began just removing tattoos from people's faces and necks and arms and so on. So they could find jobs and housing, et cetera, et cetera. It's a story of a guy named Bird in Muncie, Indiana, who grew up in an area near um, very large transmission factories that really were the central part of the town. And he he worked for a while at this community center right across from his house. Mm -hmm. Then as the factories began to really decline and then eventually close, the city decided they didn't have the budget to keep the community centers open. And they say, okay, we're going to close these community centers. And they closed one across from this guy's house. The name is Bird, nicknamed Bird, except for the Bird kept the key. you know. And so as this neighborhood went through some very stressful economic and drug-induced times as well with the opioid thing, he became this community center unto himself. And he began to just open the, the community center, unbeknownst to city leaders who thought it was closed, and open it, uh, and the kids would play basketball, and the and the the, the older folks would play cards, and there'd be uh, birthday parties and uh, and wedding receptions, and all this guy for several crucial years. He kind of was the community center unto himself, and kept that little neighborhood together in in a fundamental way. It's those kinds of stories that I wanted to tell that I thought were so important to how we need to respond to mm. what we have, what we are facing, both legally, again, with sugar and gambling and social media and illegally from the Sinaloa drug cartel. Right, right. Well, I want to share this with you. So you know that um, you are definitely making a difference. Anne Elizabeth Northen, who is the uh, executive director of yes. Join Together Northern Nevada. I, when she reached out, I was really interested in knowing how it was that she found you and, and what the draw was. And, and her answer was knowing that um, it was a good time to raise awareness, gather in collective community grief, discuss the incredible work that our community does to improve the lives and really know that even though we're making such small steps, this book highlights how important each step toward change really is. Yes. And that makes so many of That's us. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's it how just, I feel. That's how I think about it. It's how every recovering addict uh, operates. The small stuff, one day at a time, the small stuff from a from a 30,000 per foot perspective, one day of not using drugs, it doesn't seem like much. Right. But down on the ground, it's the whole ball game. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's daily rep- and it's also this movement towards other people, as they always say, don't isolate, be with mm-hmm. others, find mm-hmm. others to mentor, uh, uh, get involved in something bigger than than yourself. Because in addiction, you've been all about yourself for quite a long time to the to to the, the great harm of yourself and, and others around you. So all of this, it, it just seemed to me that this this was not like this. It, it's not like. People haven't thought this before. It just seems like we need to hear it. We just need to hear it. And we need to hear Mm -hmm. it probably over and over and over, if you ask me. And that's why I began to focus on, and and, and it was that reading that that passage in the Bible made me feel like Jesus understood this. He understood the importance of, of community, of the small steps, of of working together, of just kind of very easily kind of moving towards, uh, you know, without expecting miracles, without expecting that you are somehow changing the world and therefore not getting discouraged when you, when it, when all things don't 
rapidly change overnight. You know, that's just not how human society has ever worked. And we get into trouble when we start expecting it to behave that way. When we start expecting our, our politicians to make changes and when they don't, we get very upset and, oh, you're wasting taxpayer money. Well, no, give them some, give them some space. You know what I mean? Let them do their, their thing. And, and let's, let's understand that, that real positive rooted social change takes time. Yes. Amen. And thank you so much for that. Um, I can't help, but just be so excited now to meet you in real life. Um, and that's going to happen pretty soon here in Reno. We are, we have an event upcoming for anyone that is interested on November 16th at 6 PM at UNR Joe Crowley theater at the university. Sam is going to come. He's going to have an amazing, a uh, couple other speakers are going to be available. The Least of Us book will be there. I suggest you get yours now. So when Sam's in Reno, you can maybe talk him into signing it for you because that's always <laughs> cool. And by doing so, why don't you head over to Sam's website so we can make sure we get these sales on the book, which is S A M Q U I N O N es.com. You could also find this at join together Northern Nevada, which is jtnn.org. And lastly, there will be a really cool book club Q&A virtual with Sam. You can do that in person at the Radical Cat Bookstore in Reno, Nevada, or you can do that virtually with Sam on November 10th at seven o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Sam, thank you so, so much for your time today. It was just amazing to hear. It has given me a lot of excitement on the little things that we are doing here in town. Well, it's great. I really appreciate that, Lori. And I'm very much looking forward to this kind of thing. This has been a revelation to me. Uh, as my books, I've written my books and published my books to to be able to go around the country. And, you know, it dawned on me as I travel, I don't see much of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to see airports and holiday inns and Hampton inns and whatever. But I do see a lot of Americans. And yeah. that is a very uh, um, energizing uh, thing. So I'm very much looking forward to getting out to Reno on uh, Wednesday, the 16th. I'm also very much interested in doing this, this book club thing on Thursday night, this coming Thursday night. Uh, and so thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it's so much appreciated. And I really look forward to seeing folks uh, from Reno, from Reno uh, show up at the, uh, at the, at the, at the event uh, on the 16th. Awesome. You heard it here first. See you guys there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfeld, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right, calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I've been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.